compromise. Compromise is one of those things that can be, it can be a good thing at times, or it can also be a bad thing, depending on the context. Um, in the case of the pastry war, uh, compromise was a very good thing. In fact, compromise was what prevented the pastry war from escalating into an all-out war between Mexico and France in the 1830s. Uh, so in 1838, or in 1828, there was a French citizen named Rimentel who owned a bakery in Mexico City, and uh, a military coup ended up taking place in Mexico City, and as a result of this military coup, there was uh, a lot of destruction, and Rimentel's bakery was destroyed uh, in all of the chaos. And so uh, he petitioned the Mexican government and asked them uh, to for recompense, and they basically ignored uh, his petitions, and so then he petitioned his home government in France, asking them to come to his help and come to his aid, and his petition, once again, basically went ignored for about 10 years. But 10 years later, in 1838, uh, King Louis-Philippe became aware of Remental's position, uh, and so the king was already really, really angry with Mexico because they had borrowed millions of dollars from France and they had not paid back their debt. And so when King Louis-Philippe heard about uh, Rimentel, he demanded that the Mexican government give Rimentel 600,000 pesos as compensation for his bakery that had been destroyed, which was a, an insane amount of money. It was way more than he actually needed to rebuild his bakery. And so he demands these 600,000 pesos in compensation. And when Mexico refused to give Rimentel these 600,000 pesos, King Louis-Philippe shocked everyone by starting a war. He declared a war and he literally sent a naval fleet to Mexico and they blockaded the city of Veracruz and then began to shell the city with artillery. And this actually resulted in several minor battles ensuing in the aftermath, and about 250 men lost their lives, and Mexico even called up the famous General Santa Ana out of retirement to come and participate in this fight where he lost a leg in this. Um, and it, the only reason it didn't escalate into a full-out war was that the British government finally stepped in to broker a peace deal or a compromise and as part of that compromise, Mexico did indeed end up giving Remintel 600,000 pesos for his destroyed bakery from 10 years earlier as part of the compromise. An all-out war was avoided. Now, when it, when it came to the church in Pergamum, though, in the first century, and when it comes to the church today, compromise is actually one of the greatest dangers that we face. It was a very good thing in the pastry war, but it's not such a very good thing in the church today, and it was not such a very good thing for the church in Pergamum in the first century. This morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, in verses 12 to 17. We're continuing our series through the book of Revelation, and we've been looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia that Jesus wrote. And so we're on, uh, this is the letter to the church in Pergamum. So we're going to read Revelation 2, 12 to 17, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into the passage. Here's what God's Word says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. Jesus, your word is a sharp two-edged sword. And by your word, you have revealed truth. Your word is perfect and trustworthy. And by your word, we can know who you are and we can know how to have a relationship with you. And your word is able to build us up and sanctify us. Your word is sufficient. And so I pray that as your word is taught this morning, that you would help us to have ears to hear, just like this passage calls us to. That we would heed what your word says. And I, I pray that you would help me in my weakness to teach. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide every word that comes out of my mouth, that I would not teach my own ideas, that I would not, I'm not here to give my opinions. I'm here to explain and expound your word because it's your word that has the power to save. It's your word that is able to build up your church, not me not any of the programs we have in our church, none of those things, God. So, Lord, please come and, and be merciful to us. Have mercy on us this morning and, and speak to us, God. We need to hear from you. Lord, we love you, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to give a little bit of context and background here um, about Pergamum. So Pergamum was the official capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, and it was known back in that day for its dedication to the emperor. In fact, the very first uh, temple for emperor worship was constructed in the city of Pergamum. Uh, and Pergamum was also a very affluent and highly educated city. Uh, the historian Pliny the Younger called it by far the most distinguished city in Asia. Uh, and it was also the home to the temples of many other gods and goddesses. Uh, for example, Asclepius, uh, the god of healing. Um, it, had, it was kind of in the form of a snake. It's actually where we get the symbol for the medical symbol that has the snake that comes from this goddess. And so that, goddess, that god's temple was there in uh, Pergamum. And they would hold large feasts dedicated to these gods, and they would have sacrifices to the emperor, and temple prostitution was a very common practice. And, and these were things that all of the everyday citizens participated in. It was just part of the fabric of life in Pergamum during this time. And participation in the worship of these deities, including the worship of Caesar, was expected. And if you didn't participate... You risked being seen as disloyal to Caesar 
and to the way of life in Pergamum. You would definitely make yourself stand out as sort of an outcast. And so it's no wonder that Jesus called Pergamum the place where Satan's throne is. Christians face immense pressure to participate in the worship of idols. And many of the believers in Pergamum had endured harsh persecution for confessing Jesus as Lord rather than Caesar. In fact, in this passage we just read right here in this letter, we learned that one of the members of this church, Antipas, was killed for his faith in Christ. And yet, the church had continued to boldly confess Jesus as Lord, and Jesus commended them for that. Like the church in Smyrna that we looked at last week, they were weathering the attacks from the outside on the church. But the big threat to the church in Pergamum wasn't coming from the outside. It was coming from within. You see, there were people in the church who were teaching that because of God's grace, you can live however you want. We're forgiven of our sins. Jesus has paid for all of our sin, and so now you're free to live like the world lives. You don't have to worry about that. You can go down to the temple and, and eat some food sacrificed to idols. You can participate in these feasts dedicated to these other gods. You can do a little bit of sexual morality and, temp- and, and go to see the temple prostitute. There were people teaching these things. They were, there were people in the church who were not only participating in these things, they were even encouraging others to do so. And just like today... To live as a faithful Christian in Pergamum meant you would stand out. You wouldn't participate in the sexual immorality and the idolatrous feasts that everyone else did. And that would have, that would have had social and economic consequences and maybe even more for those believers in Pergamum. But as I said, there were people teaching, hey, you can still be a faithful Christian and go along with what the world around you is doing. There's no need to stand out and put a target on your back. And that would have been a very convenient and enticing message for many people to hear, you know? After all, that way you could still have your faith in Jesus and you could avoid the suffering. You could have treasure in heaven and also enjoy the pleasures of the world. So you really have two problems here in the church in Pergamum. First, you had people in the church who were promoting false doctrine and participating in sinful behavior. And secondly... The church was seemingly letting it happen. They weren't dealing with it. And you might think to yourself, well, I would, I would never compromise on my faith in Christ. But we're tempted to do it every day. We are. With the internet, there is no shortage of teachers at your fingertips ready to encourage you that you can live however you want. That God thinks you're awesome. And it's not just beliefs that we're, temp- that we're tempted to compromise in. Christians con- are constantly tempted to compromise in our behavior. You don't have to leave your house to go down to see the temple prostitute today. You can go see her on your cell phone. But as we're going to see in this passage, there is a standard of truth by which God calls us to align our beliefs and our behaviors. And that standard is oftentimes going to be out of step with the crowd and out of step with the culture around us. And there are always going to be some in the church who will declare that we ought to give, get with the times and live like the world around us. But the main point of the message today is that true Christians will resist the temptation to compromise in their beliefs or behavior 
and they will be rewarded with endless satisfaction in Jesus' eternal kingdom. Say that one more time. True Christians will resist the temptation to compromise in their beliefs or behavior and will be rewarded with endless satisfaction in Jesus' eternal kingdom. Now, this morning, my original plan as I began to prepare this passage was to address compromising in our beliefs and our behavior because they were both an issue in Pergamum. And, uh, but I've decided to split those topics into two weeks for two reasons. First, it's just way too much to try to cover in one message. And secondly, uh, the church that we're going to look at next week that Thomas is going to be preaching on, the church in Thyatira, was facing some very similar issues and um, so that happens to be the, to- the passage that Thomas is going to have next week. So I'm going to primarily hone in on the temptation to compromise in our behavior. And then next week, Thomas is going to talk about the temptation to compromise in our beliefs from uh, Revelation 2, 18 to 29. So before we dive in, though, we need to see how Jesus begins to address the church in Pergamum. Jesus started by reminding them that there is a standard by which everyone will be judged and that that standard is His Word and He is the judge. Jesus reminded the church in Pergamum that He is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. That's hearkening back to chapter 1, verse 16, when John has the vision of the Son of Man and verse 16 says, from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And the sword refers to his authority to judge. And that it comes from his mouth tells us that Jesus renders his judgment based on the standard of his word. So because Jesus is God, his word is perfect, inerrant, and trustworthy. It's without fault. And because God has spoken, we don't need to be confused about what's true and what's not, or about what's right and what's wrong. God has made it clear in His Word. And we will be held accountable to that truth. We won't be judged by the standard of of what other people are doing around us or by how true we are to ourselves or our own feelings. The Word of God is the sharp two-edged sword that Jesus will, will wield. And Scripture tells us that judgment begins at the household of God. And the word picture here that Jesus gives is pretty intimidating, okay? He's, he depicts himself standing over the church at Pergamum in a threatening way with a sharp two-edged sword representing his authority to judge, which should tell us that Jesus takes it seriously when the beliefs or the behavior of his people contradict his word. That Jesus commended the church in Pergamum for their faithfulness and enduring persecution, but he confronted them for their compromising in their beliefs and behavior. And he made it clear that true Christians will resist the temptation to compromise on their behavior. Now, because emperor worship and the worship of these idols was so integrated into the fabric of society in Pergamum, as I said, there would have been a lot of pressure on Christians to participate. After all, everyone was doing it, right? And Jesus confronted this idolatry and immorality, and he called them to repent. Look again at verse 14. He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
Therefore, repent. So what Jesus is saying is that, is that you, have people, you have people there in Pergamum professing Christians who are living in open sexual immorality and participating in idolatrous practices and they're encouraging other people to do the same. And he's saying, repent or I will come and I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. That's what's happening here. And Jesus compared these people who were doing these things to Balaam. Now, this is a reference to, to the events recorded in Numbers chapters 22 to 25. In Numbers 22 to 25, the Israelites were making their way through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. God had delivered them from slavery to Egypt. He had been supplying them with all that they needed, with manna from heaven, with water from the rock, everything that they needed. They were on their way to the promised land, and there was a people called the Moabites who were continually harassing and opposing the Israelites. And the king of Moab, whose name was Balak, was alarmed at the size and the strength of the people of Israel. And so he came up with the idea that he was going to go hire a seer named Balaam, which is like a, a prophet, named Balaam to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel. The only problem is, is that God would not let Balaam pronounce a curse on the people of Israel. He prevented him from doing so. And so Balaam said, hey, king of Moab, I have another idea. Why don't you seduce the people of Israel with idolatry and with sexual immorality instead? And you can cause them to stumble by introducing them to your gods and they'll turn away from their God and maybe that will mess things up for them. And so that's exactly what happened. And we see the result in Numbers 25, 1 and 2. It says that the people of Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. They committed sexual immorality with the Moabite women, and they participated in the worship of Baal, the fertility god of the Canaanites. And as a result, God intervened in judgment and struck down 23,000 Israelites. And in the same way, the believers in Pergamum were being tempted to participate in the worship of idols and in sexual immorality, and many were giving in. These false teachers were like Balaam, misleading the church into error by their words and by their example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 8, Paul, the Apostle Paul addressed this very same issue and referenced Numbers chapter 25 as well. And I think it's worth it to read this passage, even though it is eight verses. Let me read this passage. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, meaning through the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. That's referring to the manna from heaven. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, Paul says to the church, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. 
So all these Israelites, they passed through the Red Sea. They ate the manna that God provided. They drank the water that, was, that came from the rock when Moses struck the rock. And yet, Paul says, most of them, except for two, Joshua and Caleb, failed to enter into the promised land. And in Numbers 25, the Lord struck down 23,000 of them for their idolatry and their immorality. And Paul says, this was recorded as an example for us. So hear hear me very clearly. This is Paul's point. You can get baptized. You can go to church. You can even eat at the table of the Lord's Supper. But if you are living in unrepentant sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus will intervene in judgment upon those who commit spiritual adultery, just as he did on those unfaithful Israelites in Numbers 25. Ephesians 5, 5 and 6 puts it this way. Paul says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The teachers in Pergamum who told the church that they could eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality and remain a Christian were speaking empty words. They were speaking peace when there was no peace. And Christians who counsel you that you can go on living in sin are also speaking empty words. And it's, it's not just false teachers who speak empty words. Sometimes we can speak empty words to ourselves. Now, one of the clearest places this shows up today is pornography. We need to talk about this, and we need to just face it and see it for what it is. In a room this size, there is no doubt that there are men in here, and even some women, who are viewing pornography on a regular basis. That's just a fact. And according to Jesus' word in Matthew chapter 5, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. Our version of going to the cult prostitute today is pornography. And there are far too many Christians who are not putting up a serious fight. If you have, hear me, if you have a pattern of regularly viewing pornography, you have a pattern of committing adultery. Let's not whitewash it. Let's not call it something else. Let's call it what Jesus calls it. You have a pattern of committing adultery. The person on the screen is not your spouse. Hear the words of Ephesians 5. Do not be deceived with empty words, because, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, I want you to hear me. This is actually, no, despite how some of you are probably feeling sitting in your seat right now, really, really uncomfortable, this is a gracious word from Jesus. No, it's not comfortable But when somebody is sitting on the train tracks with a freight train heading straight forward towards them, our primary goal and aim is not to make them comfortable. It's to get them off of the train tracks. And I'm afraid some of you are sitting on the train tracks right now. Jesus is calling you to repent this morning, and it's an urgent call. Don't continue living in a way that contradicts God's word. Another area this shows up is in the entertainment that many Christians consume. 
It is alarming to me how quick we can be to compromise in the shows that we watch or the video games that we play or the music we listen to. It really is hard to imagine how Christians who love Jesus could be entertained by the things, the very things that put Jesus on the cross. And I think the natural thing that our minds are tempted to say is, well, everyone else around me is doing it. Even even all the other Christians are doing it. Heck, I even saw this one church that did a, a sermon series themed on the Game of Thrones, so it can't be that bad, right? That's what was happening in Pergamum. The pressure to participate in these feasts dedicated to idols must have been tremendous because everyone was doing it. Everyone was doing it. And I mean, after all, it's just a party, right? It's not like I'm going to worship these gods. I'm just going to go eat with some friends. Just going to go to this, this feast dedicated to these idols. It's not a big deal. Do you see the slippery slope? It doesn't matter what everyone else is doing. That may be the case, but Jesus said that wide is the road that leads to destruction. Why would you do what everyone else is doing? What matters is not what everyone else is doing, but what God has said. That's the point here. You can, and and here's the deal, you can keep on participating in those things and you can maintain a clean image on the outside. It is possible. And you, you can fool the church, but you can't fool God. I may be stealing a bit of Thomas's thunder for next week because next week in, to the church in Thyatira, Jesus says that he's the one who has eyes like flames of fire, which means that Jesus sees and he knows our secret sin. He sees and he knows our motives. So why would you foolishly continue living a life of secret sin, projecting an image of yourself that you are not, when it's all going to come out in the wash anyways? It's like my dog, Timbit. I have a dog named Timbit. And he has this habit if we have to literally like lock the trash can in a room when we leave the house, because if we don't, he will get into the trash. And what he'll do is he'll knock the trash can over to spill it so that he, he can then go in and get whatever he wants out of the trash. And he knows that he's going to get in trouble when I come home, because every time it's happened, when I come home, his tail is tucked between his legs, and he's hiding under the table, and he knows I'm about to be in big, big trouble. And, but he does it anyways. He knocks over the trash can, even though he knows he's going to get caught. He knows he's not going to get away with it. That's dumb. Don't be like my dog, Timbit. Don't live a secret life of sin. It's going to get found out. Here's the really good news. You don't have to keep your sin in the dark. You don't have to project an image of yourself that you are not. Instead, you can be honest about where you're at with yourself and with God and with others. You can confess your sin and you can bring your sin into the light. And do you know what? God says, I will forgive your sin when you confess it and bring it to the light. And in the midst of a body of believers like this, you won't be met with judgment and with shame. You will be met with grace and understanding. Because every one of us is a sinner as well who've been forgiven by the grace of God alone. How is it even possible that God could forgive us guilty sinners? How could a perfectly holy God forgive our spiritual adultery and our gross immorality? It's because Jesus died on the cross for sinners. Though He was perfect and innocent, He gave His life as a ransom so that you could live. 1 Peter 2.24 says that He Himself bore our sin in His body on the tree so that we could die to sin and live to righteousness. 
Jesus took on your sin on the cross so that you could receive his righteousness as a free gift. And that free gift is received by faith alone. What's amazing is that, like, like Doug mentioned just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus knows all of the skeletons in your closet, all of your secret sin. He already knows it, and He still loves you, and He still died for you. And He's calling you to depart from iniquity and to come to Him. Let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. By faith in Christ, you are not only counted as righteous, you are a new creation And you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, giving you the desire and the ability to do the things that are pleasing to God. Romans 6.14 says that sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under the law but under grace. Did you hear that? Unlike the false teachers in Pergamum who are saying, hey, God's grace gives you the license to sin and live however you want. Paul says, no, no, no. Paul says it's actually the grace of God that sets us free from the power of sin. The grace of God sets us free, not, doesn't set us free to sin, it sets us free from sin. Does that mean that you are never going to stumble in sin? That you're never going to struggle with temptation? No. But it does mean that you will never make a habit of sin or make peace with sin in your life. And that's the point. If you, are, if you have a pattern, a continual pattern of living in unrepentant sin, if you're regularly viewing pornography, if you are regularly consuming media that you know is not honoring to God, if if you're regularly out like robbing banks on the weekends and you're living this double life that we don't know about, whatever that sin may be in your life, if it is a regular part of your life, then what we've talked about this morning ought to alarm you. And you need to be shocked awake and you need to repent and turn the other direction. 1 John 3, 9 says we can't continue in sin because we have been born of God. Meaning it's impossible for a Christian to make peace with sin because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. He's going to make you miserable as long as you keep on sinning. And that's a good thing. It's like that's the reason when you put your hand on a hot stove, it hurts. It's miserable. Why? It's a protection mechanism that God has put into your body so that you don't melt your hand off. Right? The pain actually protects you. In the same way as believers, as followers of Jesus... If you are sinning and you're feeling this conviction and this guilt and this shame over it, that's God telling you, take your hand off the stove, dummy. Not dummy, but take your hand off the stove, son, daughter. I mean, sometimes he probably does say dummy. You're right. Sometimes we need that, right? Sometimes we need to be shocked away. But he's calling us to to come away from these things that lead to destruction, that lead to death, and come and find life. Come and have life. Don't continue on in sin. And... I think we should mention before we move on that the call to repent here from Jesus is directed, it's directed towards the false teachers and those living in sin. But Jesus is also calling the church as a whole to repent because the church in Pergamum was was not doing anything about it. They were letting it happen. The church has a responsibility to preserve sound doctrine and to ensure that that sin doesn't gain a foothold in the church. Because when sin is allowed to go unchecked, it causes all sorts of destruction in a body of believers. Just a few of the things, like like first of all, it it will ruin the witness of the church. Jesus said, if if salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown away. When sin goes unchecked in the church, it will also cause others to be led astray. 
Sin is like gangrene. It's deadly and it spreads and it needs to be rooted out. It must be rooted out or it will kill everyone. And when sin is allowed to go unchecked in the church, it will ultimately destroy the one who is living in sin. I mean, if it's true that, like what we read earlier, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, then the most unloving thing we could possibly do is look the other way when a member of the church is living in unrepentant sin. The most unloving thing we could do is just ignore it and, make, and, and speak peace when there's no peace. This is why Scripture prescribes restorative church discipline, not to punish, but to help restore those who are wayward. And churches that neglect this responsibility are quite frankly, quite frankly, guilty of spiritual manslaughter, or at least criminal negligence. Each member of the church plays a role in helping one another resist the temptation to compromise in our behavior. And we need to speak the truth to one another in love. So if your brother or sister is living in sin, don't speak empty words to them, implying that they can live a life that contradicts God's word and remain a Christian. That's the easy thing to say. It's harder to tell the truth, but it's the most loving thing that we could possibly do. And it's one of the means that God has given us to help one another persevere. Now, I do want to put the caveat on this, that, that the manner with which this must be done is, uh, is one of humility. So don't start running around the church pointing your finger at other people and, and going, you dirty sinner, you better repent. Like, no, no, no. This needs to be done with humility because each one of us is a recipient of this grace. Every single one of us. And we're able to extend that same grace to others because we've received grace when we didn't deserve it. So we don't, we don't look down on those who are struggling in sin because apart from God's grace, every one of us would run headlong into sin. Like the hymn, Come Thou Fount says, we are prone to wonder. And it's God who holds us fast. So instead, we gently and lovingly urge people to turn from sin towards something so much better, towards Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't just call the church in Pergamum and he doesn't just call us to repent with the threat of, of judgment. And that threat of judgment on those whose beliefs and behavior contradict his word are real, but so is the promised reward to those who conquer. Look at verse 17. And this is kind of what I want to wrap up our time looking at. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The way that we ultimately fight sin in our lives is not by gritting our teeth and trying really hard. It's by fixing our eyes on something better. The hidden manna symbolizes fellowship with Christ. And it looks ahead to the feast that we will enjoy at the marriage supper of the Lamb when we will partake of Christ and He will satisfy us forever. And the stones, stones during this time were used as a pass of admission to special occasions like feasts. And the color white is symbolic of righteousness. So for these believers in Pergamum, 
refusing to compromise in their faith meant not taking part in these feasts dedicated to idols that everyone else was going to. But Jesus promises that those who conquer, who do not compromise, will be granted entrance into a celebration and a feast that is so much better with food that will actually satisfy. Do you see how Jesus is holding out a reward here that counteracts the temptation these believers are facing? Those who conquer will receive a white stone, meaning that the recipient is counted as righteous and is granted entrance into the kingdom of God and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And they will receive some of the hidden manna. Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Those who conquer have fellowship with Jesus forever. And then verse 17 says, we will also receive a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. And this, this new name likely refers to the name of God. Most commentators believe this because of Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, which says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write on him the name of my God. And then later on in Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 4, we read that upon Jesus' return, we will see his face, and his name will be on our foreheads. So what, is, what does all of this mean? To receive this new name that others don't know means that we will know God and have fellowship with God in a way that others don't, in a a way that we currently don't. Right now, we know in part and we see in part, but then we will see Him face to face. And to be given a new name means to be given a new status. It's much like marriage. When, When Jen married me, she took on my name And all that was mine became hers, all $250 in my bank account. She got to take part in my riches. (sighs) But here's the deal. Now, the church, right now, we are betrothed to Christ. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the church will finally be wedded to Christ and the marriage will be consummated. And guess what? Christ has much more to offer than I did to Jen when we got married. Those who conquer will receive Christ's name and consequently share in all that belongs to Christ, His dominion, His power, and His glory. We will share in that with Him. That's amazing. And that's quite frankly amazing, and it's worth a lot of time of meditation. The Puritan Thomas Chalmers once wrote a book entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the entire premise of the book is that we fight the seductive allure of sin by fixing our gaze on something more beautiful and more valuable. And I think that that is in part what Jesus is helping us to do here as he holds out this promise of fellowship with him in eternity and and being able to share in all that belongs to him. And he's saying, yes, you're going to miss out on some of these things that look shiny and that look good from the world. Yes, you might be ostracized. Yes, you might, be, you might have to, to take up your cross and deny yourself right now. But the reward that you will receive in heaven is great, and it's worth it. Those who conquer and who refuse to compromise get Jesus and all that belongs to him forever. So, church, I urge you to, to fix your eyes on him. 
Some of the believers in Pergamum were compromising in their beliefs and their behavior, and Revelation 2, 12-17 teaches us that true Christians will resist the temptation to compromise and be rewarded with endless satisfaction in Jesus' eternal kingdom. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to get ready to close out um, with a, a closing song. Uh, but I also want to invite you to respond this morning because I, I just am 100% confident that there are some sitting here in this room who you, you know that God's calling you to respond in some way today. Perhaps you've never truly come to Jesus before and you're really hearing this good news for the first time. And you're not, you're not sure if you're even a Christian and you want to make sure today that you want to be there for that marriage supper of the Lamb. You can call upon Jesus this morning. You can ask, confess your sin to Him and ask Him to forgive you, and He will. And we'd love to help you do that. We'd love to pray with you. We're going to have some prayer counselors in the back. Or maybe you've been living a lie your entire life. Maybe you've called yourself a Christian for a long time, but you've always kind of lived in sin, and you've never really lived a life that you know is pleasing to Him, and you know that the gig is up. You know this morning that God sees and God knows your secret sin and you're ready to stop running. I'd encourage you, stop running this morning. Today you can have freedom, freedom from your guilt, freedom from your shame, freedom from the power of sin over your life. Or perhaps you're a believer and maybe even a member of this church and you've been caught up in the snare of sin. You've been struggling with some sin and you need help getting out. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Call upon Jesus for help today and then come and talk to us. Go and pray with somebody in the back. Don't let this opportunity pass you up. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So I'd encourage you, don't harden your heart to what God's calling you to do this morning. If you are feeling convicted, then that means God is calling you to respond. Don't stiff arm him. Don't stiff arm him. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing and then, I'll, and then you can respond as you feel led. God, thank you so much for your word. And I thank you that, God, you are gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. God, we are sinners. And God, we do fall far short of your glorious standard. But you are abounding in steadfast love. And you are willing to forgive wayward sinners. Thank you so much, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you so much that you have defeated death, that we don't have to continue living in shame, that we don't have to live under the fear of death, that we can come into the light, that we can, that we can walk in, right in front of you and we can lay ourselves bare and confess our sin and we'll be met with mercy. Help us to do that this morning, God. Help us to live a life that's pleasing to you. God, I pray that you would build your church up and that we would walk in godliness and in holiness and be a light to the people around us, that we'd be the salt of the earth. And I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, God, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.